This sermon is preached on August 30th at Sure Foundation Lutheran Church located in Brandon, South Dakota on the basis of Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28. Carol logs into her Facebook account and posts a question that seems to be pretty harmless. She's just wondering what parents are doing with their kids in regards to masks. The school district that she sends her kids to are making masks optional, and so she's just wondering what other parents out there are thinking. But what ensues is far more than Carol ever bargained for. After only an hour on Facebook, Carol's post has more than 300 comments. Some are constructive, but a lot of them are nasty, argumentative, And people are being just plain mean. People are arguing and berating her for what what is seemingly a harmless post. There is a lot of outrage in those comment sections. Does this sound familiar? Perhaps you've been on social media long enough to know that you stay out of the comment section of people's posts, especially if you see a post that has 300 comments underneath it. Unfortunately, this seems like a fairly regular occurrence nowadays, and it's not just on the internet, it's not just on social media, but it's in person too. It seems that if, as if every statement is met with some kind of argument or anger. It could be a pretty harmless statement, yet it is still met with argument or anger. Now, <laughs> obviously I'm overstating this a bit, but you kind of get the point. This has happened so much in our culture that there's actually been a term coined to describe this. It's called outrage culture. This is the term that people have given to the culture surrounding the over and above reactions of our world. Outrage culture leads us to be pretty careful about what we say. We kind of walk on eggshells because we know that what we might say might elicit an outraged response. It also leads us to some cringeworthy moments. When you hear someone else say something and you just know that they're going to get it. Someone is going to release their outrage on that person and it ain't going to be pretty. (laughs) This got me thinking. What is the root of this outrage? What is the source? Why does outrage culture take place? I suppose you could say that people are just outraged that they aren't getting their way. and, And perhaps in some respects that may be true. But I, a bit, I believe that's a bit simplistic. I think our answer is a bit deeper. The reaction of being outraged seems to happen when a certain standard has not been met. For example, if I have a certain standard of behavior that I expect and someone doesn't meet that standard, my reaction is outrage. If I believe that a young man should come to the door when picking my daughter up for a date, instead he sits outside honking his horn I will probably react in outrage. You've probably seen that on a sitcom at one point or another. I believe that this young man should have come to the door. And I can't believe that he didn't meet my standard of behavior and that he sat in the car and honked his horn. I want to move the discussion just a little bit. Why might somebody be personally outraged? Well, that's kind of a vague question. And it sounds a lot like what I've already asked. But here's the nuance that I'm thinking about. Why might somebody feel personally attacked and outraged because they feel personally attacked? 
I think there's a lot of similarities to what we said before. We have this certain standard, this certain expectation of how we believe we deserve to be treated. We believe that we deserve a certain amount of honor or respect, and if someone fails to meet that standard, we are outraged. I have earned some honor and respect in my life. And to use the example from before with the boy honking in his car outside, personal outrage would not be being the dad in that situation, but being the daughter. She feels hurt because her date didn't treat her the way that she believes that she deserved. You're starting to get the idea. Outrage may or may not be justified, and and we're not going to talk about that perhaps today, but it happens all the time because there are constantly standards and expectations that are not being met. This is a great little introduction to our reading today. Because this reading would likely spark outrage, especially in our 21st century culture. Our reading today is from Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28. Matthew writes, Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from the vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, Have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. This is God's word. Did the outrage point sting you? Did you cringe? Jesus is talking with a woman that is from the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. This is on the Mediterranean coast, on the northernmost part of Israel. He is talking to this woman who does not share his ethnicity, and he likens her to a dog. Can you just see Jesus' Twitter page blowing up right now with comments and and with responses that are angry because of what Jesus said? (laughs) Even though I'm, I'm making light of it a bit by talking about Twitter, it's a question that we may have too. Why did Jesus treat this woman the way he did? His comments almost seem to border on the line of racism or sexism. Many have entertained this thought, and it makes sense that we would entertain this thought too. In our 21st century culture, racism and sexism are constant topics of discussion. We are very used to hearing conversations about these two subjects. And since that's the case, we tend to read scripture with that frame. And by that I mean that we bring all of our cultural perspectives, our current cultural perspectives, into the reading of the text. Sometimes this can be a good thing, that that we're bringing some of these modern day cultural perspectives to the text because it allows us to ask, ask questions about what Jesus taught about certain things. But we also need to remember that the Bible was written 2,000 years ago. This 
specific section took place 2,000 years ago. And so sometimes we need to read scripture in a different frame. And so this morning I'd like us to read this section of scripture in the frame of the Bible. (laughs) Now this sounds pretty obvious. Of course we're going to read this section of scripture in the frame of the Bible. But here's what I mean when I say that. We're going to take what we know from the other sections of Scripture and we're going to bring that perspective into this section. And so a lot like we confess in the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, we believe that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. That he was miraculously born of a virgin after being conceived by the Holy Spirit. Meaning he is 100% true God and 100% true man. On top of that, we know that he is perfect. He is without sin. That's the frame in which we are going to look at this section. And so knowing all of this and approaching that this section with that perspective, we can rule out a few things. We can rule out racism here. Jesus in other parts of scripture uh, never demeans anyone based on the color of their skin or where they're from, their ethnicity. Jesus never thinks less of these people, but he he loves all people equally and has come to save all people as is evident from even the Old Testament on on into the New Testament. We can rule out sexism. Jesus treated women the same way that he treated men. He showed them love and respect and he taught them the truth that he was their savior from sin. We can rule out any sort of malice or any sort of sin. Jesus indeed was perfect, therefore he was not sinning in this section. So, our question shifts just a little bit. Instead of coming to this text and asking, is Jesus a racist or is Jesus a sexist or did Jesus actually sin here? We come to this text and we ask, what is Jesus trying to teach here? Because he's teaching something to this woman, he's teaching something to the disciples, and he's teaching something to us Because his words and his actions are deliberate and purposeful. And to add yet another layer to this, I want you to think about this. Because we believe what we believe about the Bible, and that is that the Bible is the true and inspired word of God, we also believe that the way that the gospel writers compiled their books was no accident. For this reason, Matthew 14 is the perfect spot for that chapter, And Matthew 15 is placed there in the perfect spot as well. The authors compile these books in an order that communicates to us. Sometimes it's chronological. Sometimes it's thematic. These two sections, the the story of the Canaanite woman and the hand-washing incident, are purposefully placed next to each other. The question is, why? Of course, now you're wondering, what in the world is the hand-washing incident? That's my name for it. You're not going to find that heading in the Bible. But just prior to our reading, Jesus has a conversation with some Pharisees and teachers of the law who are there with his disciples. They come to Jesus and they ask him why his disciples have not kept the traditions of the elders. Meaning, why have they not washed their hands before they eat? (laughs) Well, in our 21st century COVID-19 world, this is a big (laughs) no-no. From the time you're in preschool, you learn to wash your hands before you eat. But the, the Pharisees aren't referencing cleanliness here. 
The Pharisees are referencing a ritual washing that takes place prior to eating. They weren't worried about germs or diseases. This ritual washing was a part of the traditions of the elders. The traditions of the elders were extra laws that are not written in the Bible. They were laws that the Pharisees kept to that were passed down from um, person to person. These were outside of scripture, but the Pharisees believed that by keeping these extra traditional laws, that made them holy in the eyes of God. They believed that they had earned something from this. And so now they're asking, Jesus, why don't your disciples keep these laws? And Jesus' response to them teaches us exactly what Jesus is really concerned about, and it's really no surprise to us. Jesus essentially says, I'm not so much concerned with this ritual outward act, but I'm concerned about hearts. Jesus goes on to accuse the Pharisees of being hypocrites and blind guides. They may have had clean hands, but they had rotten hearts. This wasn't something the Pharisees believed, though. They, they didn't believe that this was the case about themselves. They believed that they were holy. They believed that they were holy by their many good works and that they deserved some sort of respect and honor because they had obeyed the traditions of the elders. But in fact, Jesus says that their hearts were far from God, that they had no faith. All of this precedes the account of the Canaanite woman. And this background is so important for understanding this section correctly. Because the faith of the Canaanite woman is a direct contrast to the lack of faith of the Pharisees. So this Canaanite woman approaches Jesus with a problem. Her daughter is possessed by a demon and she is suffering terribly. Like any good mother would, she is trying to find somebody that's going to help her in this instance. And she knows that Jesus is the only one that can do that. Yet this woman makes the request of Jesus... But he does not answer. The woman is persistent, though. And if you were a mother trying to find help for your daughter, you'd be persistent like she is, too. She keeps crying out after Jesus. This was her daughter. You might picture someone following Jesus and the disciples around who is constantly asking Jesus questions and and sticking close to him. And her persistence got so annoying that the disciples, they urged Jesus to send her away. But Jesus says to the disciples, I was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. You can bet that the woman heard this, but she persists. She gets down on her knees and she says, Lord, help me. And then there's the cringeworthy point. Jesus says, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Jesus has come for the lost sheep of Israel. He has made that clear. This was his first priority in his mission while he was here on earth. So his statement is that it is not right to take what was intended for the Jews and give it to the Gentiles. Jesus has made the statement, but now how would this woman react? She replies, yes, it is, Lord. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Jesus responds, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. Hypothetically speaking, if this woman had responded in outrage, what would this have revealed about her? Well, we talked a little bit about this in the introduction. It would have shown that she believed that Jesus didn't treat her as she deserved, that she deserved a certain amount of honor and respect, 
And by likening her to a dog, Jesus did not seem to give her that honor and respect that she deserved. Hmm. It's a bit interesting, isn't it? Because as you look throughout Scripture, the Pharisees were persistently outraged with Jesus. What does this outrage indicate about the Pharisees? Well, it indicates that the Pharisees believed that they deserved something from God. They deserve, They believe they deserved honor and glory because they have kept the traditions of the elders. They believe that they were, quote-unquote, good people. So when Jesus rebuked them for their rotten hearts and their lack of faith, Jesus was showing them, he wasn't showing them the respect and honor that they believed they deserved. So the question for you, dear Christians, is do you believe that you deserve something from God? Now, honestly, sometimes we act like we do. After all, we, we work hard. We work hard to do good. We work hard to help others and be nice to others. Sometimes we go out of our way to do it. Sometimes we, we act nice to people when we really don't even want to. We've committed to, to serving the church. We give up hours on Sunday to be in worship. We give up hours to serve our church throughout the week. We even give our money too. We take all of these things that we know that we've done and we, we could list them all out right now. We take all of these things and we have expectations of how our life should go based on the things that we do and how God should treat us. We come to God with standards and expectations of how we believe that we should be blessed. And our sinful nature is outraged when God doesn't meet my expectations. When he doesn't bless me the way that I think that I should be blessed, I am outraged. And my sinful nature would be outraged at Jesus for likening me to a dog. Here's your your tough bit of law for today. If I believe that I deserve something from God, I will never have or understand grace. Let me say that one more time. If I believe that I deserve something from God, I will never have or understand grace. This Canaanite woman was not outraged at Jesus. She knew that she was standing before God in the flesh. We can see this very clearly from her words. She addresses Jesus the very first time as Lord, Son of David. This is an incredible indicator of this woman's faith. For this was obvious, this made obvious the fact that this woman knew Scripture and that she was waiting for the coming Messiah. The term Son of David was something that only a Jewish believer would have ascribed to Jesus. Yet this woman was a Gentile, a foreign woman. And she was still looking for the Messiah. She knew that the Messiah was for her and for all people. That was spoken about in Isaiah, the prophet. He said it was too small of a thing for for Jesus to come and save just the Jews, that he would come for all people too. And this woman knew that. And she approached Jesus knowing that. She held on to the Old Testament prophecies. She knew that in 2 Samuel 7, God came to to David and said that there will be one that sits on your throne, that is your relative, that is your descendant, that will sit on an eternal throne. It won't be a throne like any other throne. Solomon would not be the one who would sit on this eternal throne, but Jesus would. This woman believed 
that this was the one who would sit on the eternal throne. This was God in the flesh. This is her Savior who would save her from her sins and forgive her. This was her God. She knew who she was standing in front of. And she also knew that she was sinful and needed saving. She knew she had no right to demand anything from God. She had no right to expect God to heal her daughter. She was a mere beggar before God. She was a house dog begging for scraps. Brothers and sisters, this posture of absolute humility before God is the posture of faith. Only a person of faith can approach God this way. With an accurate perspective of who I am and who Jesus is. It is the posture of knowing that God has every reason to be outraged at me. Because I haven't met his standard. Because I haven't met his expectation. It is the posture of knowing that if God treated me as I deserved, that I would be damned to hell. But instead... Jesus gives me grace. Instead, Jesus forgives my sins. Instead, Jesus blesses me. Instead of letting what you're, letting you have what your sins deserved, Jesus suffered what your sins deserved on your behalf. Instead of leaving you helpless, he gave you hope. Instead of alienating you, he brought you in. That is your God. He gives you what, you're, what you don't deserve, which is the very definition of grace, God's undeserved love for us, which is a common theme that runs throughout the Bible, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When you understand how unworthy and undeserving you are, that is when you understand, when you cherish, and when you chase after grace. That is when you realize that God has already surpassed any of your wild, wildest expectations. This morning, I'd like to, to close our sermon just a little differently than we've closed other sermons before. I'd like to conclude with prayer. Join me in praying. Lord, Son of David, we admit to you that too often we are prideful people. We believe at times that we have the right to expect something from you. Forgive us, dear Savior. Drive that pride and that expectation out of our hearts. In its place, plant a deep desire for the gospel there, that we might thirst for your word daily. Replace outrage with peace. Replace indignation with thankfulness. And continue to give us the scraps that fall from your table. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.